brag on God today on this first Sunday of Advent here at North Place. We begin our celebrations this week, and if you're new to Advent, let me just describe it for you. The word Advent simply means coming or inbreaking. It is the coming of God, the inbreaking of God, the advent of God. So it is the much deeper theological foundation of what has become a very shallow cultural celebration at Christmas. Advent is the celebration of the inbreaking of God into human history. And the birth of Christ is only a part of it. Okay, the birth of Christ is the crescendo. Christmas is the crescendo of Advent, but it's only part of the story. We're going to do what the song says. We just sang as a special song a moment ago. We're going to celebrate Christ coming to the world, but we're also leaning in, anticipating the Messiah's return, his second coming, as Scripture promises. Several months ago, as I was praying over Advent celebrations, the Lord led me to a really odd passage in my devotional time. I had to read over several times trying to figure out why. God, why are you taking me here for Christmas? What what does this passage have to do with Christmas? Here's the passage. It's Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. That's just the beginning of Psalm 46. And for weeks, I read and reread the whole chapter. I prayed through it. And every time I asked God, why did you send me to Psalm 46 for Christmas? And then two words jumped off the page and all of a sudden it made sense. Look at verse 1 again. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And it was, that was it. It was those two words. Ever present describes the very pr- essence of God's nature and his character. Those words describe who God is and what Christmas is all about. And I want to take the next few weeks showing you how ever present is the meaning of Christmas. To help us understand the ever present nature of God I want to introduce you to two words that are often used in theological circles, but they're rarely used anywhere else. And listen, you need to be ready for this. I don't want your eyes to glaze over when I give you these words because they have a lot of syllables, all right? But this is rich. And I promise you, if you get this ever present and you grasp a hold of these two theological words, Christmas will mean more to you than it ever has this year. Here are the two words, transcendence and eminence. The transcendence of God means that God exists outside of humanity's full experience, perception, or grasp. He transcends us. The eminence of God means that he is knowable, he's perceivable and graspable. He reveals himself to us. He comes close. His presence is near or imminent. Transcendence and eminence are opposite concepts, but they are both true in the nature and character of our ever-present God. And the words ever-present in Psalm 46 describe both the transcendence and the eminence of God. And here's a visual for you. The word ever is pointing to God's eternal, forever, everlasting, transcendent nature. Okay, it's about God. Ever is about God's transcendence. And then you have present, which is pointing to his personal, close, intimate presence that has come to dwell with us, his imminent nature. So the word present points to his 
imminent. So he is an ever-present, a transcendent yet imminent God. These two words, ever-present, literally describe the essence and the meaning of Christmas. The everlasting, eternal God willingly lowered himself into the human experience so that he could be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. Those words are the words of the writer of Hebrews. He became one of us so that he might change us, save us, heal us, transform us. Christmas is the story of a transcendent God motivated by his love for us, choosing to be imminent, near, close. Christmas shows us that he is an ever eternally present God. A verse from John's gospel that's always quoted this time of year to sum up the theological underpinning of Christmas captures the transcendence and the eminence of God as well. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When Jesus is referred to here as the eternal word, it is pointing to God's everlasting nature. Flesh is a reference to his willingness to come near, to come close, to be present, to dwell with us. So the word becoming flesh is another way of saying ever-present God. It reflects the meaning and purpose of Advent and Christmas, which is to reveal God's transcendence and his eminence. Today I want us to focus on the ever part of the ever-present God, because you'll never fully grasp the depth and beauty and meaning of Christmas until you understand God's eternal transcendent nature, his magnitude, his enormity, his majesty, his measurelessness. This time of year, we tend to focus on the baby in the manger. We talk about the incarnation and we focus on the flesh part of the story But before you can understand what it really means, the magnitude of God becoming flesh, you have to understand what it really means for God to be God. I mean, think about it. We have a God that exists outside the timeline of human history. He transcends it. He created it. History is His story. And yet... This God that transcends our timeline that the Bible calls the Alpha and the Omega, which means he is the A and the Z, the God who created time and is the bookends of all time, willingly confined himself to one small dot inside the whole timeline as a baby named Jesus simply because this God who is ever wanted to become present. Again, to understand the beauty of Christmas, you have to come to an appreciation of just how big God is. And only then will you be in awe of this measureless God who chose to become one of us. Listen to God describe his own transcendence. Isaiah is conveying God's words to us in Isaiah 55 verse 8. God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's God describing his own transcendence. And just two chapters later, listen to how Isaiah describes God. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity the Holy One. So when Isaiah says, some versions you'll remember say, high and lifted up, 
here he is high and lofty and lives in eternity. When Isaiah uses those words, he's not talking about God being high up in the sky or high up in the heavens. This is not a description about altitude. He's not locating God spatially or putting him in some place because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time and cannot be contained to a certain location. So that's not what Isaiah is talking about, altitude. He is referring to the ever part of God's nature. He is the most high God. He is telling us of God's transcendence. He is above us. Beyond us, high and lifted up, he is incomprehensible to us because he he transcends us. And because human language doesn't have the capacity to capture the size, greatness, and majesty of God, the only way we can describe him is using similes and superlatives. I mean, think about John in the book of Revelation. John has this incredible vision of Jesus And the only way John can capture it in human language and write it down is through simile, which simile is a comparison using like or as. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you read Revelation 1, verse 14, listen to John describe Jesus. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. You can tell John is seeing someone whose brilliance is so magnificent, it is impossible for his words to capture the magnitude of what his eyes are seeing. So like and as comparisons are the best thing he can give us. John is saying, He's really not wool or snow or fire or polished bronze or crashing waves or blazing sun. It's greater than any of that, but that's the best comparison my words will allow me. But it's not just similes. It's about superlatives. I mean, think of the superlatives in Scripture. And in case you forgot from grad school or uh, grade school, here's the definition of the word superlative. Superlative means of the highest order, quality, or degree, surpassing or superior to all others. And here are some common superlatives. Any word that ends with EST, like highest, holiest, strongest, another word that's a superlative, most, another best, or any statement that is all-inclusive or exclusive, like all, everything, never, nothing. Those are superlatives. And Jeremiah gives us a superlative description of God in Lamentations 3 when he writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You simply can't describe God or his character without using superlatives. I mean, think of the superlative names of God. We've already used one. Isaiah used the Most High God, and that title is used 48 times in Scripture. Or think of the name Almighty God, or another version of it, the Lord Almighty. That title is used 57 times throughout the Bible. The psalmist uses both of those in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
When it comes to might and power, there is none mightier and there is none more powerful. He is most high and all mighty. Going back to John's vision of Jesus, this time in Revelation chapter 19, listen to how he describes Jesus. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. There is not a king, a president, a prime minister, a premier, a general, a chief, a dictator, a trillionaire. Absolutely no one supersedes him. He is transcendent. He is king above all kings. He is Lord above all lords. He is the superlative of everything good you could call him. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is an always, ever-present God. And you can see our language has a difficult time capturing the ever part, the eternal part, the bigness of our God. So let me use another method to try to help us comprehend the incomprehensible. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah tries. He tries to teach us about God's transcendence, God's magnitude and bigness, the everlasting transcendent nature of God in Isaiah 40. And I'm just going to read selected verses because the whole verse is about the transcendence of God, the whole chapter, all right? Selected verses beginning in verse 12, Isaiah 40. Isaiah says, who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains on hill and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Verse 22, God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up to the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one of them is missing. And since Isaiah points us to the stars to talk about God's transcendence, let's go there. We often refer to the known universe because we haven't built a big enough telescope to see all of it. So there's a lot of the unknown universe. And every time we get a little more sophisticated and build something bigger, we see more. And scientists are stumped. They think the universe is way too large to only have one inhabited planet. They think it's way too much wasted space for only one planet in the the massive cosmos to have life. They think the universe is oversized. And I agree, the universe is oversized if all it is is a home for you and me. But what if the primary purpose of the universe is not just to be a home for you and me? What if the primary purpose of the universe is to show off the size, the majesty, and the glory of the God who created it all? 
And if that's the purpose of the universe, the universe isn't too big at all. It's just simply reflecting the creator that it was created to mirror. It is the image of our creator. Our God is just that big. He is just that transcendent. Here's a little perspective. We live in a little subdivision of the universe known as the Milky Way galaxy. Okay? The universe is so large that we have to use a light year as a measurement to get around in this universe and calculate distance. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. A beam of light can circle the earth seven times in one second. So in a 365-day period, light travels 5.88 trillion miles. That's the distance of a light year, 5.88 trillion miles. So the foot, the yard, the mile isn't going to help you measure God's universe. It is so big, we have to measure it with a measuring stick that is 5.88 trillion miles long. Our little subdivision of the universe consists of billions of stars. Not hundreds, not millions, not hundreds of millions, but billions. Scientists tell us that there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies besides the Milky Way galaxy in the known universe. And obviously that doesn't count what we can't see in the unknown universe. They're going to show you an image of our neighborhood, all right? This is a picture of our our, our little cul-de-sac in the universe, our Milky Way galaxy. If you were to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy at one star per second, just one star per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count all the stars in just our little neighborhood, okay? The heavens are telling us how big God is. He is not our size. He doesn't think like we think. He is working off a canvas bigger than we can imagine. The heavens are yelling at us to see his magnitude. And until we do, we will never grasp the miracle of Christmas. Take a look at this composite image of the Milky Way galaxy. This was created by taking hundreds of thousands of individual pictures in order to make this one image. And if you traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one side of this picture to the other, just from one side of our neighborhood to the other. This is just our neighborhood, okay, in the universe. And then there's the unknown part of the universe. Earth is about two-thirds of the way out from the center of this image. It's not marked on the diagram because there is not a mark that would be relative. It is so small in this image. It is not even visible on this diagram. As a matter of fact, our entire solar system is too small to even be portrayed in this image. Just for comparison, if our solar system with our planets was the size of a quarter The Milky Way galaxy, our neighborhood, would be the size of the North American continent, and you can't even see it on this image. The psalmist got it right when he said, when I look at the sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you think about them, human beings that you should care for them? And when you and I come to the place where we are humbled by God's magnitude the way the psalmist was in Psalm 8, only then will the miracle of Christmas become real enough to change us. We have to understand his transcendence before we can appreciate the incarnation, his eminence. Look at this famous photo. It's called the pale blue dot. It's a photograph of planet Earth taken. Those light rays are sunbeams. And that arrow is pointing to planet Earth. 
It was taken on February the 14th, 1990 by Voyager 1, a space probe, uh, and it was taken from 4 billion miles away, okay? On October the 13th, 1994, referring to this photo, the famous astronomer, Dr. Carl Sagan, said this, we succeeded in taking that picture from deep space, and if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, every one you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all of our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. And the incomprehensible God whose glory is reflected in the heavens the earth hangs in chose to make himself comprehensible to the people that live on that pale blue dot by stepping into the human experience in the person of Jesus Christ. And that in itself is the miracle of Christmas. Christmas is about this majestic, transcendent God that is so big and compared to him we are so small and yet we are treasured by him. We are prized by majesty. He came for us. He searched us out. Even though we are frail people on a tiny speck flying through the cosmos he created, he knows every single one of us by name. Just like he numbered and named the stars, he could start in this building and move to every campus, to every person online, to every person on the planet and call each of us by name. He's so massively expansive, but at the same time, so personally and uniquely involved in every one of our lives. He is ever present. When the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. He is describing the transcendence of God. And he's also describing the source of our Advent hope. I hope you see it today. We have an always, eternally, ever-present God working on our behalf. Advent and Christmas reminds us that our very big God breaks in. He steps into our story, and I believe he's going to inject himself more intimately and more powerfully into your story this Christmas. When we grasp the majesty of our God, it makes our problems seem small. When we right-size our God... It right-sizes our problems. And when we see his commitment to be present and involved in our lives through the story of Christmas, it gives us the courage to start hoping for the miraculous. This is the essence of Christmas. The transcendent God coming close. He walks among us in the person of Jesus, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He has come to dwell with us. When you have that truth in your heart, it becomes a stabilizing hope. Today at all of our campuses, our campus pastors are going to join me and do this with me so we collectively light the hope candle 
We'll light a different candle every week and the Christ candle on Christmas Eve. But today I want to, as I light this candle, remind you that we have a God who breaks in. This is about Advent hope. This big, majestic, unfathomable God knows the hairs on your head. He knows the tears you cry, the pain you feel. And his promise to you today is I'm pursuing you just like I did at creation, like I did at Christmas, like I did at the cross. I'm pursuing you right now. I want to be involved in your story. I want to break in. I want this to be an advent in your life. I'm going to ask if you'll stand with me all over this place at every campus today. And prayer teams, would you make yourself available today? I, uh, I want to speak the blessing and benediction over you this morning. But I think there's something supernatural about the Advent season. I think for some reason our hearts are nostalgically full of faith and hope in this season of the year. When we've given up, we find some kind of measure of hope that we thought we had lost. And I pray to speak life into that in you today and in the coming weeks. Remind you how big he is and his commitment and how committed he is to get close to you today. So if you need a miracle of some measure in your life, relationally, physically, financially, seize a hold of that Advent hope and let our prayer teams pray with you today. Let's believe together that God will break into your story, that he'll break into your situation. Father, would you bless them and keep them? Would you make your face shine down upon them? Would you be gracious to them? Would you turn your countenance their direction today? And would you give them supernatural Advent peace? And would you unleash in our heart today a fresh dose of hope? Because you're just that big and you're committed to be just that close. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. These altars are open today. Merry Christmas.